Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be here again speaking. And this Sunday, we're going to be continuing our series in the Psalms. And we're looking at Psalm 15 this morning. So if you would turn there and please stand. Psalm 15. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. You may be seated. And I'd like to open with a word of prayer first. So, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for the privilege it is to approach you in worship and, and in prayer. And I also thank you for your word, and as you're about to look into it, uh, I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts, uh, convicting us where we need convicting, and encouraging us where we need encouragement. Uh, please guide my words and my thoughts this morning, and may all that be done to your honor and glory. Amen. So what is a citizen? Now, we're all citizens in one way or another, and the meaning of it is to be legally recognized under a state or, or a nation. And we, we would all be citizens of different towns. We have people from, from Niverville and from Landmark or Grunthal and Sardo. And I would guess many of us, or, or most of us, would be Canadian citizens. Now, if you are born in Canada, you're automatically granted citizenship. However, for those wanting to move from another country and receive Canadian status, there's a test that they must take and they must pass. And you can go online, there's practice tests. But thankfully, I was born in Canada because I actually failed it. But it is there as a set of requirements a person must meet before being able to identify with the country. And likewise, coming to Psalm 15, it sets forward a list of requirements for those who want to be citizens of heaven. And more specifically, it gives an analysis of a person's character that is worthy of dwelling with the Lord. So looking at a background of the, the chapter, there isn't much given in the heading of this psalm that would tell us the occasion that it was written for. We're simply told it was a psalm of David. So apart from speculation, we, we can't be sure of the events that surrounded its authorship. However, based on the content of the psalm, which it also has similarities to Psalm 24, some have associated it with the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which you can find in 1 Chronicles 13 through 15 and 2 Samuel 6. And if you recall, this was the time when David desired to bring the ark from the land of the Philistines, where it had resided for some 70 years already, uh, back to Jerusalem. Only issue is that he didn't seek the will of God in this, and they also didn't handle the ark of the covenant as God had directed them. Instead of the priests carrying it with the poles that they were given, David had a cart made and pulled by oxen. And as a result of this, it was the oxen that stumbled, and a man named Uzzah, put out his hand and touched the ark, something that was strictly forbidden. And Uzzah died on the spot. And then we were told in 2 Samuel 6, 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
Now, it's safe to say David was overcome again by the holiness and the power of God in that moment, and he was struck with a fresh sense of a fear of the Lord, and understandably so. And be it based on speculation, but I think that David was overcome with this new, re- new realization of the holiness of God and the steep requirements for any human being to be in the presence of the Lord. So coming to Psalm 15, we find that same mindset. The psalmist, which as we read was David, comes before God asking, who can commune with the Lord? And as you'll notice, it's not asking for a specific list of individuals, but rather a collection of characteristics that can be used to identify those who are the chosen ones of God, those that can be in the presence of the Almighty. And think of the requirements to come before royalty. You can't come to them in your, in your sweatpants or a t-shirt or act around them as you would your friends. No, you, you take into account your apparel, your, your conduct, and the way you address them. And likewise, there are requirements to come before the Lord of the universe. Now back in Exodus, the people of Israel were given instructions for the tabernacle, which was the place where God would dwell among his people. And with this, God also gave directions for the consecration of the priests that would serve there. And you can find this in Exodus 29. And there we find various rituals that the priests would take part in, including sacrifices, washings, anointings, and ordinations. They also had to wear special garments for their duties. And all these things were meant to remind the people of Israel of the holiness of God and the reverence he demands. And without following these specific directions, the priests wouldn't be able to approach the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle. And David would have been very familiar with these customs, so it's interesting to see the answer of Psalm 15 to the question of who can approach God and be in an intimate relationship with, in an intimate relationship with him. And through the answer, we see it goes far deeper than the ceremonial washings and the consecration rites which they were commanded to do. Sure, these things showed outward obedience and piety, but Psalm 15 goes further than the surface appearance. It reaches down to the heart of a person. It has to do with the basis of the character and the lifestyle of an individual as they come before the Lord and be in his presence. So when we come to here to worship each Sunday, do we take time to examine our hearts and how that plays out in our thoughts and in our actions? And as we go through the psalm, let's analyze ourselves with the examination that it gives us. So looking at an outline of Psalm 15, it's, it's often been called the question and answer psalm as it has a very straightforward structure. You can see in verse 1, the question is posed, and then in verses 2 to th- halfway through verse 5, the psalmist answers the question in a very simple point-by-point process. And then the last part of verse 5 provides an ending clause that declares the outcome of the person who depicts this psalm. So with that, let's get into the text. Starting in verse 1, the question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now it's a twofold question, essentially saying, who can live in intimacy with the Lord? Or what are the requirements for being in his presence? And overall, they inquire of the same thing. The, The question is repeated for emphasis, as the Hebrew would have it. Yet, in this repeated question, it's interesting to see both the similarities and the differences. Both questions have the same objective, asking for a description of a person that would be in communion with God. The first question phrases it in a more temporal sense, while the latter carries with it a more permanent view. In the ESV, 
sojourn and dwell are used as parallel terms, as well, as well as tent and holy hill. And I'll make a quick side note. If you're reading in the NIV, you'll see the terms used are dwell and live. And though this isn't too different, it is more common for the Hebrew words to be translated as sojourn or abide for the first question, while the second question would be to dwell or to settle. And it seems to align better with the view of the psalmist, because to sojourn is to temporarily stay. And in the first question, David refers to the tent, meaning the tabernacle, which stayed temporarily as it moved or sojourned with the Israelites through the wilderness. And on the other hand, to dwell is to permanently stay. And this is in connection with the holy hill of the Lord, which would refer to where the temple would eventually be built. And though the temple would be destroyed one day, the holy hill referred to here in Psalm 15 gives a picture of permanence or continuity. Now, I I don't say all this to bore you or to try to sound sophisticated in how I can break down sentences, but there is an important point in all of this. And maybe before we go into it, I'll mention a a hermeneutical principle that we can all use as readers of the Bible. And that is, in Scripture, we see all sorts of similarities. And we should be looking for them as we make connections and grow our knowledge of the big picture of Scripture. Similarities and parallels in the Bible are important, but it is in the differences that we find our theology. So let's apply that here. The repeated questions, they inquire of the same thing. There is a clear parallel. Yet the differences of the temporal to the permanent make for an important observation. We as believers are, are wandering through the wilderness of this world, worshiping God as we sojourn through life. Uh, and David, however, looked forward to a more permanent place of worship, that being the temple. And bringing that to our own situation, how much more should we look forward to a permanent place of worship? And I'm not just talking about a church building, though that would be exciting. But through our lives, we should be looking forward to our heavenly home where we are destined to dwell one day. And if we are to personally apply this psalm, that's what it's speaking about. It speaks of a person that is truly part of the church, one that has been born again and is living their life in fellowship with God here on earth now, but one that is ultimately heaven-bound. And that's where our hearts and our minds should be as believers not getting caught up in the cares and the busyness of this world, but looking forward to our final, more permanent home. The Puritan Richard Baxter writes, Consider, a heart set upon heaven will be one of the most unquestionable evidences of your sincerity and a clear discovery of a true work of saving grace upon your souls. You are often asking, how shall we know that we are truly sanctified? Here you have a sign infallible from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Where your treasure is, There your hearts be also. So what is your heart set on? By knowing that, we can know what we are truly striving for. And as we go through the psalm, let it be a reminder of the perspective we should have in our lives as we seek to grow in holiness. Not looking for the immediate rewards that this world has to offer, but to the eternal reward of dwelling with God. Now moving to the answer portion of the psalm, in verses 2 and on, I want to make an important note. And that this isn't a checklist of character traits that if we try hard enough, we might just get that passing grade. And it's not a criteria that God sees who is good enough for heaven. No, if it, if it was that, there would be no hope for us. We must realize that God doesn't come to us and find these characteristics, but rather these traits are by which we may identify those who have been born again. 
It is those traits that God is growing and developing in those who have been born again by the power of his spirit. So we're going to look at some of the different areas of a person's character that the psalmist touches on. And I've categorized them into five ways that you can identify a citizen of heaven. And that would be by their conduct, their conversation, their commitment, their constancy, and their conscience. So first, in verse 2, a citizen of heaven is notable by his conduct. Verse 2 says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, this has to do with lifestyle. How does an individual walk? It encompasses both their actions and their thoughts. And to walk blamelessly is the same command that was given to Abraham in Genesis 17.1 when God said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Job 2 was described as being a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, let's be clear, this, this doesn't mean sinless, as all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Undoubtedly, these men would have had their struggles with sin. However, it says of Job, he feared God and turned away from evil. So to be blameless is not to be ruled by sin, but to have the fear of God in your life and to live according to that. In other words, it means to do what is right and speak truth in your heart, as Psalm 15 says. Now, this is an outward expression of an inward change. A citizen of heaven is in his walk, what he professes to be in his talk. And as Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, a tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Therefore, a man must be righteous before he can do righteous deeds. But on the flip side as well, we can also see what's in the heart of a person by their actions. Now, some of you are thinking, but what about the unbelievers who do good things? They, they're nice people, they help others, and quite frankly, some of the times they're more pleasant than those who profess to be Christians. The truth is, though, if these people are apart from Christ, their good deeds are of no value. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And in John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So therefore, to do good things, a person must be living in Christ. Because without him, we are capable of no Christ-exalting good. We are unable to glorify God, which should be our main purpose in life. For those who are in Christ, though, we are called to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to do, as we see in Ephesians 2.10. Now, according to some psychologists, up to 90% of our communication is nonverbal. So with our words, we have body language, tone of voice, facial expression, and many other things we don't even think of when we're talking to somebody. But yet to convey the right message, these instinctive actions must be, must be consistent with what we're saying. So the saying, actions speak louder than words, holds true. Now think of it if we were going to take this in the context of our spiritual lives. Are we living in a way that backs what we believe? We can memorize as many Bible verses as we can and recite all the catechisms we want, yet it's useless if these truths don't become rooted in our hearts and work themselves out into our lives. However, our righteous actions must root from a truthful heart. 
And as verse 2 says, he does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. A citizen of heaven is what he professes to be. There's a direct connection. Test. Oh, there we go. We're back. So a citizen of heaven is what he professes to be. There's a direct connection from what is being lived out in a Christian's life to what is being spoken or fed into their hearts. And back in high school, I was a part of a track team. And on days where I had track meets, it was important that I would eat right. Now imagine if I would fill up on Burger King or Taco Bell, that would not have ended well. But if I wanted to feel my best and do my best in my events... I had taken account when I eat, what I'd eat, and and how much. And what I consumed had a big impact on my ability to perform. Likewise, what we feed into our hearts has a direct connection to how we walk in our spiritual lives. So how are we feeding ourselves? What information do we take in on a regular basis? In our culture, we're overwhelmed with the amount of media available to us in, in movies, our phones, the radio, music. And whether we realize it or not, these things preach to us. Are we aware of the messages we are accepting unknowingly or or knowingly? We need to be careful that it never overrules or inhibits our intake from the word of God. That is the source of truth that the psalmist tells us to speak into our hearts. And when our hearts are filled with truth, it will inevitably have an effect in the way we conduct our lives. So moving on from verse 2, discussing the conduct of a citizen of heaven, we come to the next point found in verse 3. And that is, a citizen of heaven can be recognized by their conversation. It says, Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend? So going from the end of verse 2, where it was discussing what believers speak inwardly, now the psalmist changes his perspective to what believers speak outwardly specifically on the topic of slander. It's been noted here that the terms slander and reproach have similar meanings as they have the same Hebrew root word meaning to strip. And this is meaning to strip someone of their reputation, whether that be uh, in speaking slander or believing what is said about someone else, taking up a reproach. And that is, to take up a reproach is to believe the slander you hear from others. Therefore, in this verse, it demands that we have no connection to slander on either end of the conversation. Whether we're speaking it or believing it, we're to put an end to it as God hates slander. Exodus 20.16 says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And 1 Peter 2.1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We aren't to have any part of it because we will be held accountable for it. As Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And it doesn't take an expert to realize that the issue of slander is rampant in our society. The news is packed full of stories strictly written for the shares and the likes. But rather, it's rather than relaying the truth to people, 
And unfortunately, our political campaigns are mainly centered on who can throw more dirt on the other person's name rather than discussing the morality and the ethics of a country. Overall, slander is so common that it's become one of the acceptable sins of the day. Now I'm borrowing the term acceptable sins from a book by Jerry Bridges where he discusses a variety of sins that have become overlooked in our society. And he titles them as being acceptable sins. Not that it is truly acceptable, but in the view of the world, there's a mentality that if everyone does it, it's okay. That's not how Christians are to think. No, Christians are not to settle with the standards of the world. Christians are called to put sin to death. And slander at its core is, in a way, stealing. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Therefore, when we talk about somebody's name or reputation in our conversations, we're, we're handling one of the most important parts of that person's identity. It's the foundation to their relationships. And when we damage it, it has a ripple, ripple effect to potentially break other parts of trust in their lives. And it takes time to build up a reputation, but only moments to break it down. So we need to watch our conversations carefully and be aware of how we can impact another person's identity with our words. And we should be aware of the subtle ways that slander creeps into our conversations. It can disguise itself as, as many different things. It could be a harmless comment you heard around town, or, or it could be a concern that you're sharing with someone who really has no good reason to know it. But regardless of how innocent it may appear, slander is a deadly disease that is spread by vile men. And the psalmist addresses them in the next verse. Starting in verse 4, he says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And this brings us to our next trait, and that is a citizen of heaven can be noticed by their commitment. This person recognizes what side of the field they're playing from. And I'm sure many of you have seen that clip of the football game where there's a fumble and the guy picks up the ball and takes off to the end zone only to bring it back to his own end zone. No, believers aren't that. They know which side of the field they're playing from and they know what they're playing for. And they have discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. The verse says, the godly man despises the vile person. The vile person is a violator, a violator of God's perfect law. And a citizen of heaven is to despise or abhor the vile man, while on the other side he honors those who fear the Lord. Matthew Henry writes on this verse, saying, He is one that values men by their virtue and piety, and not by the figure they make in the world. The citizen of heaven realizes there's more to life than what we can do or accumulate on this earth. He's no respecter of persons valuing people by their status or rank or, or wealth, but he sees things as God would see them, loving what God loves and hating what God hates. I'm sure we've all heard the common saying of the day, well, whatever works for you, or something to the effect of the you-do-you mindset. And people nowadays think that everyone can have their own truth, the truth that works for them. But some, and some Christians have also been sucked into thinking that we need to be more tolerant, more accepting to those who have different views. But tell that to David. No, Christians are to call things as they are by the true standard of God's word and holding to that as the final authority, not bending the knee to this new and improved progressivism. And as believers, let's make sure we call what is good, good, and what is evil, call it evil. But to those who fear God, we are to honor 
And I think Paul, as he was writing the letter to the Romans, he must have been familiar with this psalm, because as he wrote in Romans chapter 12, starting verse 9, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now here Paul gives us some very practical steps of how to honor those who fear the Lord. We are to outdo one another in showing honor. And this isn't just a picture of paying somebody back for something that they did for us or doing something with the hopes of receiving something back. No, we're supposed to seek to honor them because they stand for truth. And to quote Baxter again, he says, A Christian indeed is much more studious of his own duty towards other than of theirs to him. I came across an interesting story in my preparation of an interaction between Luther and Calvin that gave a good example of this. Now, Luther, being strong in his convictions and having a bit of a fiery spirit, once wrote a bit of a bold letter to a group of men who disagreed him on a theological matter regarding communion. And this confrontation by Luther caused quite a stir among the men whom, to whom it was addressed. But John Calvin, hearing about it, persuaded and encouraged them to respond with grace and respect to Luther, even though Luther didn't like Calvin and probably could have confronted them with a little more tact. Calvin recognized that Luther was a servant of God and was to be honored and respected as one. And may we have the same mindset to those who are working for the kingdom of God. Now, the next characteristic of a citizen of heaven is his constancy. That is the quality of being unchanging or unwavering. It says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, in other words, when he makes a promise and finds out it's to his detriment, he, he doesn't back out. No, and notice there's no attached clause to the statement. It's not specified for a certain area of life, but it's all-encompassing. A man of God is trustworthy and lets his yes be yes and his no be no. Now, Time Magazine had an article back in 2018, and the caption on it read, Honesty isn't always the best policy in relationships, and here's when experts say it might be better to lie. And the article proceeded to give five instances where lying is acceptable and even more so recommended by so-called experts. But the matter of the fact was that it was all self-serving and, and targeted to make oneself more likable. But it's not just in relationships that this is an issue, but how much more common is it that people would be okay with backing out of a commitment when money is involved? When you're going to take a big hit on a business deal, a person's standard of honesty somehow changes a bit to suit their own interests. A citizen of heaven, on the other hand, is constant in what he says and what he commits to. They're not looking to their own benefit, but maintaining their word even when it hurts. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And going on. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Citizen of heaven has a right and godly conscience. That is doing what is right rather than looking to one's own interests. He knows what is right and he does it. And in verse 5, it gives examples in connection to finances specifically. The first being, who does not put out his money at interest. Now this isn't a blanket statement against all forms of interest. And there's a number of Old Testament passages that help us understand 
the psalmist's view better. And in Exodus 22:23, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. And Leviticus 25:35 to 36 says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he was, were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. And in Deuteronomy 23, we're told, starting verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, any tr interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. So in, in light of these passages, it becomes more clear that David is speaking about caring for the poor and not charging criminally high interest rates. Many Bible translations make use of the word usury in verse 5, and I think that gives us a good picture, usury being the, a criminally high interest charge. And in the time when David was writing, interest rates could reach as high as 50%, a rate that's completely unattainable for, for most people, never mind someone who's struggling to make ends meet. And therefore, when David says to not put out money at interest, he's saying not to take advantage of the less fortunate. And Charles Spurgeon phrases it well when he writes, The demanding of excessive interest and grinding interest is a sin to be detested. The taking of the usual and current interest in a commercial country is not contrary to the law of love, because in a commercial world, money is a fruitful thing, and the lender has a right to be a part of its products. A loan to enable a non-trader to live over a season of want is quite another matter. So we see it's really caring about those, for those in need and being willing to put out our own assets out to help them when they need it most. And this connects very clearly to the next part of verse 5 where he writes, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Here we step into the courtroom where a citizen of heaven will not skew justice for his own benefit. His conscience desires justice rather than riches. And a Christian, indeed, is as precise in the justice of his dealings with men as in acts of piety to God. Proverbs 21.3 says, to do, justice and, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And it, further into that chapter, in verse 15, it says, when justice is done, it is joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. And rightfully so, as it reminds us all of the ultimate day of justice that is coming. For a citizen of heaven, not demanding interest and upholding justice shows and maintains a pure conscience, one that looks to the interest of others, as Philippians 2 says. And with that, we come to the result. For he who does these things shall never be moved. The one who is blameless in his conduct, doing what is right and meditating on the truth, the one who is pure in his conversation, not slandering or stripping others of their reputation. The one who is loyal and right in his commitments, honoring those who love the Lord while despising what is evil. And the one who is constant in what he says and believes. And the one who has a compassionate conscience that seeks justice and the benefit of others. It is this person that shall never be moved. So how do we do? Looking at the requirements to be in the presence of the Lord? Do we fulfill what is demanded of us? I know I don't. I can't reach these standards daily, hourly, or even moment by moment. 
And if I or anyone would say we can do this on our own power, we are either appallingly self-righteous or delusional. And if we'd end the sermon right here, we'd have no choice but to fall into one of two ditches. Either being deceived into thinking we can do it, or we'd have a reason to be completely depressed, knowing we can't ever dwell with God. Our only right response is like Paul in Romans 7. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's why if we want any hope, we must turn to Christ. Christ is the only one who ever lived out this psalm perfectly. He was blameless and sinless in all that he said and did. His conversation was never impure. He cared for others and had perfect discernment. And finally, he swore to his own hurt and gave up his life on the cross, meeting the just requirements for you and for me so that we can dwell one day with him in heaven. And it is only by his atonement for our sins and through his righteousness that is imputed to us that we can be saved. Christ is the rock that shall never be moved and the only way of salvation. And this morning, if you are trying to stand on anything but Christ, it's a useless attempt. And I pray that God will open your heart to the gospel so that you can live in victory and the hope that is found in him. Because it's in Christ and only in him that you can stand firm. As 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And for those who stand on that foundation, as Psalm 15 says, it is he that shall never be moved. Before we end here this morning, though, I want to leave you with three notes of application. Now, all these characteristics that we discussed this morning, they're good things to pursue. But as we said earlier, God doesn't come to us and, and find them. Rather, if you're living in faith, it is these things that God is cultivating and growing you in you as you lean on him. Yet they also stand as benchmarks to show the demands that must be met to dwell with God, which is the first point of application, and that is that we need to recognize the requirements. Recognize the requirements. God's holiness demands perfection, something that we'll never be able to attain until we reach our glorified state. Therefore, we should never be proud or or think we're self-sustaining because we're constantly dependent on our Savior. And in that, we should rejoice in Christ's righteousness. And that's the second point. Rejoice in Christ's righteousness. It's in him that we can have fellowship with God. On the cross, he said, it is finished and the veil was torn so that we can approach him and receive forgiveness. And in him, we are made legally righteous, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. From a forensic standpoint, you are perfect. So we should be filled with gratitude and joy for the salvation that he gives. And we can sing like Moses in Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And lastly, we need to rely on the rock. He's the one that gives us the strength and the desire to do what is right. And we are continually dependent on him. And when we stand on truth, we shall never be moved as he keeps us from stumbling and ultimately will carry and sustain us to the end. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for hope. You are the reason that we can live today and look forward to, to another. And we recognize that in ourselves we fall short of your standards each and every day. So help us cling to and and rely on you. Thank you for making a way for us to come to you now and ultimately dwell with you in heaven.
And I pray that the thought of heaven would spur us on in the faith as we journey through this life. And I pray now that as we take part in communion, that we would do so with hearts of thankfulness and humility as we reflect on what you've done for us. Now we pray this all in your name.